You're listening to Hosea, the Jealous Love of a Holy God, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. All right, good morning, everyone. The plan is that this will be our final lesson from the book of Hosea. And so we've been in this book for at least lesson number eight. We spent most of our time in the first three chapters looking at the life of Hosea. And then the last two weeks and this week, we'll be looking at the preaching of Hosea in the final 11 chapters of the book. So we come to our final lesson, reading a book that reveals in a powerful way the heart of a God who loves his people, who has a jealous love over his people. And we also reveal in this book the sinfulness of you and I. And, and really, it's the sinfulness of humanity. But I think sometimes when we talk about the sinfulness of mankind or the sinfulness of humanity, we, we push it off to a whole group of people rather than recognizing that in this book, we are the Gomer. So I would say the sinfulness of mankind, that's put the problem out there and not in here. And really, that problem isn't here. Uh, I have to tell you, I've always liked the book of Hosea. It's always been a book I've enjoyed. Um, It's always been an amazing story to me. Um, But after reading this book in depth and studying it, uh, the scandal of the gospel is just so crystal clear in this book. And and I love the book. It's, it's It's an amazing book. It's an amazing story. It's amazing how God worked um, through Hosea's life to so clearly demonstrate the judgment of God and the love of God. Um, his judgment and his hatred towards sin is not just stated, it's described. And if you've ever read a great novel, you know that the novelist doesn't tell you what happened. The novelist makes you feel what happened. Right? Somehow they're able to place you there and to make you sense what's going on. Hosea makes you sick at the sinfulness of humanity. It makes you cringe at the judgment of God. The way that judgment is described, it's, it's a scary thing. You feel the weight of sin and the pain of the father who longs for his children to stop. You feel a jealous love that longs for a faithful bride and cannot tolerate her unfaithfulness any longer. And you wonder how a God like our God could love a people like us. The first three chapters begin with our prophet, a young Hosea, being called to marry a whore. The marriage is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. God is perfect. He is the perfect husband. He is faithful. He is godly. And she is sneaking out at night, getting knocked up by Joe Blow down the street. Right? That's, that's Israel. That's Gomer. He provides for her food, shelter, safety, love. She attributes these gifts to her lovers and leaves him to go chase them. When she finally hits rock bottom, at a, the, the bottom of a long dark pit, he gives all to her to redeem her out of her bondage, so that he could restore his chosen bride. Even Hosea's children's names are pronouncement of judgment. Right? Jezreel means judgment is coming. Right? Israel was to know that judgment is coming, that, that there will no longer be mercy. Lo Ruhama is no mercy. And Lo Ami is not my people or not mine. And, and his children were pictures of judgment and what was going to happen to Israel. 
Just like Nathan's parable of the stolen lamb helped open David's eyes to his own sin, Hosea's life helps to open our eyes to our sin. Right? It changes it from just like, yeah, I've done a couple bad things, but what's the big deal? To, I have broken the heart of, of a father. I've broken, I've been unfaithful to a husband who is perfect. And, and when we start to put flesh on those bones, when we start to think of God as a God who loves us and really loves us, like has a jealous love over us, and a God who is, is hurt by our sin, uh, hopefully it changes the way that we look at our sin. His life is an illustration of the sin of God's people and the love of God for them. Chapters 4 to 14 record Hosea's message to his people. And it serves to help us understand where Israel went wrong. What did they do that sent them down such a terrible path? And what should we avoid so that we don't go down that same route? Uh, Much is said in these 11 chapters, but there are three reoccurring themes that are relevant for us today. There are three things that Israel was constantly doing or not doing that seem to come up over and over again. And I think these three things, as we study them, are so clear how important they are for the church today. The first one was, they didn't know God, right? I mean, they, they still went to worship services, they still organized sacrifices, they still did some religious things, but they didn't know who God really was. They didn't know the character of God, they didn't know the, the law of God, the commandments of God, and so the priests were corrupt. The prophets had failed to warn where they were supposed to. The people knew longer, no longer knew God's law and the God that they said they were worshiping. When we know God, when we know the real God, we know that he hates sin. When we know the real God, we know that it's not okay for us to come to him however we want to, to name him or act like he is whatever we've determined in our minds. When we know the real God, we know that he exists outside of us, and it's for us to learn from creation and from his word who he is, and then to worship him for who he really is, the way he's called us to. They didn't know God. The second problem we saw last week is that they didn't trust God, right? And it makes sense. A God that you don't know is a God you're not going to really trust. They trusted in their sacrifices. They trusted in their deeds, their works. They trusted in their idols, the things that they'd created with their own hands. They even trusted in their enemies, but they would not trust God. Sin was persistent, it was widespread, widespread, and it was creative. Right? These people were, were ugly and sinful in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so we learned that in order to avoid all of this, we must have faith. Right? It's not okay, it's not, it's not going to work if we just try and reform ourselves. Like somehow we're going to pick ourselves up, and we're going to figure out what we're supposed to do, and we're going to create some kind of worship that is acceptable to God on our own. We're going to live godly on our own. What we find is as these people didn't know God and stopped trusting God, everything went, right? All of their actions went. They were all of a sudden doing all the things that I'm sure that they, they said they would never do. Um, A.W. Tozer said that, that faith is an ongoing decision to trust an object. Faith is not a once-done act, but a continuous gaze at the heart of a triune God. I think that's very true, right? Faith is not, yes, I had faith once. Yes, I trusted God once. Yes, I I prayed that prayer once. Faith is an ongoing gaze, right? It's a daily thing. We look to God and we say, God, I'm going to trust you today. 
going to trust you for the decisions I'm making today. I'm going to trust that y- your word is true and that being honest and truthful and having character in my life is better ultimately than being like Christ, that sharing the gospel, though it might hurt sometimes, and though it might cause me some pain at work and it might cause, me, uh, cause others to not like me or whatever it is, I'm going to trust that what you say is true and right, right? That the, the gospel is the power of God um, unto salvation to everyone who believes. When we trust God and we have faith every day, it changes how we act every day. It must. Um, faith is trusting him. It is trusting his character. It is not trusting us. Right? It's not trusting our vision, our ability to comprehend our circumstances. And that is what we so often do. And so if faith is trusting God, then we must start with his word, right? We must start with who he says he is. Um, Evans said that faith is not a sense, is not a sight, is not reason, but it is taking God at his word. And if we could get our heads wrapped around this idea that God's word is true, even when we don't understand it, even though it doesn't make sense to us at times, that we can trust him all times, we'll be so much better off. We must be aware of those people and those things that attempt to stand in God's place. And this was the story of Israel, right? There were so many things attempting to steal their gaze. So many things that were fighting for their faith, right? They wanted, they wanted to, Israel to put faith in these things. And so it was the government. It was money. It was stuff. It was job. It was security. It was the promise of a future. It was themselves. It was their religion. But we've got to remember that everything that is made by man dies with man. Right? Those things, what do you trust in them? What, what's that going to do for you? Absolutely nothing. And so we must be aware of those people and things that attempt to stand in God's place, and we must repent and put our faith in the God who is. Right? Hebrews 11 teaches us much about faith, but the primary thing we learn there is that number one, God is. Number two, God is good. Right? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that he's prepared a place for us, that it is better for us to seek him and go through worldly trouble than it is for us to find all of the glories of this world and miss him. He is, he is he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Um, even when we go to work, even when we go to high school, even when we go to whatever we go to every day, we must have faith. Uh, there's a man that says, an unknown quote, but he said, a man who puts aside his trust in Christ because he is going into society is like one taking off his shoes because he is about to walk on thorns. Doesn't make any sense, does it? And so they did not trust God and they did not know God. And what we're going to look at today, it's abundantly clear in the book of Hosea, is that they did not love God. God you don't know, God you don't trust, you can't love. But they clearly did not love God. When... Israel is pictured as a bride in Hosea chapter 2 in verse 7, sorry, verse 5, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, and verse 13, we find that she went after other lovers. Okay, In one way or another, she was chasing after other lovers. So it was clear that they didn't lose their ability to love or their desire to love. Um, Israel was loving a whole lot of things but they were not loving God. And so that's why when we get to chapter 3, it's so amazing to us. 
Chapter 3 begins, Then said the Lord unto me, to Hosea, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend. So go love a woman who is a lover of someone else, yet an adulteress, according to the love of God toward the children of Israel who took other gods and love flagons of wine. It's amazing. It's, it's crazy to us to think that he's just described this people who is so sinful and so bent on loving other things. And his message to Hosea is go and love her again. Go redeem her. Go buy her back. It doesn't make any sense. It's this incredible mystery to us. Why would God do that? And how would he do that? Now, we don't have the answer exactly how he's going to do it yet, although it's pretty clear that it it costs Hosea everything to redeem. But what we do have is why. And that's spelled out to us throughout a number of different verses in the rest of the book of Hosea. So I want to begin, rather than just talking about Israel's problem of love to begin with, I want to look first at God's love for Israel. Because I think this is so clear here and this is so powerful here that if we don't, if we miss this, we won't really understand why they should have loved Israel anyway in the first place or why Israel should have loved God in the first place. We see God clearly loved Israel. So turn to Hosea chapter 11. And if Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in the book of Hosea, I gotta say that 11 might be the second. Okay? Hosea chapter 11 is a pretty amazing chapter. We'll begin reading at verse number 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So he begins and he says, I loved Israel. I loved Israel as a son, right? This is a father speaking and saying that I called them out of Egypt. I called them out of bondage. I called them out of slavery, right? I delivered them. I did that and I love them. But then he says, verse two, as they called them, so they went from them. And, and what it's saying here, it's not saying that just one time I called them and then one time they went from me. He's saying all the times, like this is not just only happened once in Israel's history. They weren't delivered from Egypt just one time. Well, Egypt they were, but they weren't just delivered from other nations and, and bondage just one time. It's happened over and over and over again. And so all the times that I called them, that many times they went from me again. They sacrificed unto Baalim or Baal, to Baals. They burned incense to graven images. As I called them, they went straight to their false gods. And we see this clearly in the book of Exodus. As soon as the people are delivered and Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, what happens? They create for them a golden calf. But remember what happens when they create this golden calf. Do you remember what they called this calf? Aaron said, these be thy gods. And the word there is actually singular. So this is your God, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He goes on and he says, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord Jehovah. So they called this calf Jehovah, right? They, they weren't planning to replace God. They were planning to, to make God fit into some kind of statue that they could then go and worship and they could figure out how to worship in a way that they they liked, right? Um, a lot of times I think we see the movie. Do you guys remember the movie about Moses and the Exodus and then the whole golden calf scene and it's like this 
this crazy orgy that's happening around the, that's, that's kind of the, the scene pictured. And really, that's not what I get from, when I, from reading the text. To me, what it seems like more like is they're trying to actually, they think in their minds that they're able to create God and, and name this as their Jehovah, and that, that'll be okay for God. God will be happy with that. Just doesn't seem like God's okay with that. Right? In fact, when God speaks to Moses, he says he's going to destroy them all and start fresh. Now, Moses prays and, and he intercedes on behalf of the people and eventually God determines that he's not going to do that. And obviously God was never going to do that in the first place. Um, but, but here, it's just so clear that they thought they could create God in, their, in whatever image they wanted to. and It's not okay. And so as I called them, so they went for me. They burned incense to graven images and they kept doing this over and over again. In verse number three, he says, I taught Ephraim, Ephraim being Israel, also to walk, to go, to take them by the arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with the cords of a man, with bands of love. I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. What incredible parental love is being showed in these verses, right? I taught you to walk. What a picture of parental love. You're taking your child by the hands and you're walking them and you're, you're trying to get them to take those first steps and just, just rejoicing in the steps when they're finally taken. Um, when you fell, I helped you back up. I drew you to myself with compassion, with care, with love. This is the way that Israel was always being treated by God, right? It's not like God was being this awful, evil, terrible dictator, and Israel's like, okay, we just want a different God because you're just mean. Okay? I know sometimes when people look at the Old Testament, they look at the God of the Old Testament and say, oh, that God's mean. That's not how God treated Israel. That's, that's not, that's not what happened, right? God was always so good to Israel, and God was so merciful to Israel over and over again, and yet Israel still chose to keep running. Pastor? Yeah, I think, you know, when you read this too, I mean, it's interesting because it's always like when you're in line with God, there's freedom. Mm-hmm. It's taking the yoke off and then feeding you that tender picture of you were enslaved to this. Absolutely. I took that away from you. And I think so many times we forget that when we follow God, it's not bondage. It's, right. it's true freedom. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and a lot of times we think if we follow God, what's going to happen is he's going to put a yoke on our neck. Yeah. Right? He's going to put us into bondage. He's going to take away things that we like. And the opposite is, is always true. Right? God, God loves to bless his children. Right? And um, his way is best. His way is freedom. And so he says, I, I brought you out of bondage. Um, I fed you. I brought you manna. I fed you meat. Um, just as a parent would feed their child. And we had a conversation with Spencer this week. And it was kind of like, well, I can't wait to be an adult because then, you know, I get to do all these things. And like, realize that like when you're an adult, there's a lot of things that you have to do, right? Like there's a lot of responsibilities you have. What do you mean? Like, like you eat often, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, who do you think feeds you? Who do you think works so that that can happen? Like, how do you think all of your life happens? And it's your parents. And, And it's so easy. Like kids don't get it. They don't, they don't see that. But that's exactly what's happening with Israel, right? And God is saying, I took care of you, right? I did everything for you. I gave you what you needed. I was there for you. You didn't care. I cared for you like a perfect, loving parent cares for their beloved child. There was nothing that I would not give you, nothing that I held back. You had all of me. 
But sadly, Israel was a rebellious son and judgment was necessary. And so we see judgment in verse 5. He says, He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to return. And the sword, and the idea of refuse to return is refuse to repent, not return to Egypt. It's, it's, they refuse to repent toward God. And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. Right? And so they were, they were headed toward this destruction. They were headed toward them being consumed and devoured and destroyed. They were headed toward their country being broken up and shipped all over the world and many people being killed. And all of it was happening because they just chose to follow their own way. It's not even like it's that, like, yes, there were many, many different sins and many things you can talk about, but ultimately, my way's better. That's all it took for them to, to go into all these other places. Verse number seven. And my people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they called them the most to the most high, none at all would exalt him. This sounds so much like Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, written around the same time. He said, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, their lips do me no honor, but have removed their heart from me. If you recognize that verse, you know that the same thing is said in Matthew chapter 15 that Jesus quotes. So now Isaiah is saying it about the people that he's prophesying to. And Jesus, 700 years later, is saying the exact same thing to the Jewish leaders of his day. He says, This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What's happening here is he's saying that these people, their heart is bent on backsliding. Their heart is going the opposite direction. He even says that they, they call to the Most High, right? I mean, they're still do, going through the motions. They're still saying the right things. They're still singing the right songs. They're calling to the Most High. <laughs> he says, it's vain. None at all would exalt him. Nobody's truly lifting up God, right? Their, their lips are saying the right thing. Their heart is far from him. And what we're learning here is that God doesn't want our, our words. He doesn't want these traditions. He doesn't want to go through the motions. Right? He wants us. He wants our heart. He wants our love. He wants our passion. He wants everything that we are. And so their worship was meaningless and their words were vain because there was no heart, no passion, no love for God. And so look at what he still says in verse number 8 in spite of all of this, in spite of who they are. He says, How shall I give thee up, O Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Admon? How shall I set thee as Zeboam? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. He says, I mean, you're so evil. You're so awful. You know, your heart is so far from me. But how can I destroy you completely? How can I make you like Zoboam and Adma? And if you know Deuteronomy chapter 29, you know that when, when God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there were two other cities there as well. It was Adma and Zoboam. And it says the Lord overthrew them in his anger. And so he's saying, how can I make you like these cities that I completely destroyed? No, I can't because I love you too much. We are meant here to feel the anguish that God is going through. 
that his heart is turning within him. That he is back and forth so many times over what to do about them. Right? Now, I recognize, and, and, and you know, that God is immutable. He doesn't change. Right? That, that he has a, a sovereign plan that is over all things. That nothing can ever happen outside of his plan. That he knew this from the, from the beginning of time, exactly what would happen. And he knew exactly what he was going to do. So, we're not trying to change you know, who God is and, and develop a whole doctrine of God based on this one verse. But we still don't want to back away from the fact that God is here revealing his heart in all of this. That he has this desire to show mercy and to love and show grace and to bring them up like his children. But he, he he's torn because they keep running. They keep leaving. They keep rebelling. And it's like, I, want to, I, I need to judge you. I want to love you. Like, what am I supposed to do here? This is the, this is the, the feeling we're supposed to get from these, this text. And we can imagine as a parent feeling the exact same way, right? Being torn because you want to love your child, but you know they need punishment, right? They need discipline, but you love them so much, you can't destroy them completely. And so this is what God is going through. He says in verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. You know, almost other, every other God that has ever created, when it says something like, I am God and not a man, what it means is, I am way better. I am way more powerful, right? I, I'm not God. I'm not, I don't have to put up with this. Right? Why, why would you think that you don't have to come to me the right way? Why do you think that you can come to me however you want? I am God and not man, and I'm going to destroy you. That's, that's kind of what we would think at least other gods would say. But here, the, the true God, the God of heaven, says, I am God and not man. I am holy. Therefore, I will show mercy. Right? Therefore, I will not destroy you completely. This is an incredible opportunity for mercy. And do you notice in verse 9 that it says, I will not return again to destroy Ephraim? The idea is that, that yes, there will be judgment, right? But there's hope after this judgment. That it's, it's not, I'm not going to return again and destroy them completely. Um, I think sometimes we fear that, I mean, we know our hearts. We know our sin. We know it better than most. And we wonder if we run to the well of God's mercy once again, is it going to be empty? Is there a chance that we've just been there too many times, that we've expected too much of God, that there's no way that he could have mercy on me once again? And I think these verses show us that there's no end, right? I mean, that, that we can go to God over and over again, and if we repent and ask for his mercy, that he's there, Right? That though he is a holy and just and, and jealous God, he is a God of, of indescribable mercy. Mercy that we cannot comprehend. Um, the well of mercy and grace will not run dry. Um, it did not run dry for them. It will not run dry for us either. Verse number 10. They shall walk after the Lord... He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. Now, if there's any verse in the Bible that sounds exactly like the Chronicles of Narnia, this is it, right? 
Um, they shall walk of the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he roars, the children shall tremble from the west. Um, I have a, a, a little sign that we made that's in my office, and it says, He is not safe, but he is good. Right? And this is a quotation from the Chronicles of Narnia. And the scene is that, oh man, I can't remember her name. Suzanne? Su- Su- uh, Susie? Yeah, Susie. Susan, Susan. That's why. Okay, so Susan comes to this, this water and she's thirsty to the point of death. I mean, she's, she's dying of thirst. But as she gets the water, she stops because she sees that there's a lion. And this lion is drinking from the water. And she's terrified. How could I go toward this lion? How could I, how could I drink here? And so she's going to stay back and die of thirst because she's so terrified of going to the lion. But the beaver says to her, that, that's not just a lion, right? That's Aslan. And she says, well, wait, do, like, is he safe? And um, the beaver says, he's a lion, silly. Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And I think that is exactly what's happening here, right? That, that God is this lion who's going to roar and, and his children will finally follow him as they're supposed to. It doesn't mean that he's safe. It means that he is good. And what's amazing to me is here in verse 10, the, the roar, after the roar, his people follow. But we already saw that in verse 1, when he calls, the people will not walk after him. And so this is, this is the difference. This, this heart change has been made in his people so that now when they hear his voice, they will follow him. They will come after him. Something amazing has changed. And we think here of a parent calling a child. You ever call your kid? Uh, some parents, I'm sure you've done this. You've called your child and you weren't really excited about what they had just done. And they knew it, Right? And so maybe your boys had just punched their fist through a wall. My boys haven't done that yet, so it's good. So let's say you do that, and then you call, you call their names, like, Miles, Spencer, get over here. And at first, their tendency is to run, right? <laughs> they know, like, this is, bad, this is a bad deal, right? But eventually they realize that this is a bad deal, Right? But this is not my judge calling me. This is my father calling me. And it almost seems like they, they realize that, yes, God is their judge, but he's also their father who loves them. And so now they listen to his call. And we should be able to recognize um, this, this truth about God, this tension that we should hold in God, that God is our loving father, and we should always run to him and always be willing to go to him, but that God still is a judge and he hates sin. And so we shouldn't be okay with just, just allowing whatever sin into our life because it, you know, God's just my father and he doesn't care. No, good fathers care, right? And they're not okay with their kids just going and sinning willy-nilly. It's not, that's not how good fathers act. But good fathers also have this amazing ability to show mercy and grace when it's needed. And so that is who God is. Verse number 11, They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. Here we just see all over this chapter God's amazing love for Israel. God's parental love for Israel. And in return, what did God receive? After all of this, after all these times of Israel running from God and God freeing them, showing love and grace and compassion to them, what did, what did God get in return? He got no love. 
right? Israel did not love him like they were supposed to. They did not love him back. Um, we see this in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. And really when I read this verse, it um, resonated with me. It says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness. And the word there, goodness, is translated loving kindness in chapter 2, verse 19. Um, and this idea of this goodness is not just like doing good things. It's this love, right? This feeling of goodness, of love. So your goodness or your love is as a morning cloud and as the early dew that goes away. In the morning, and you've had a, a, a night that was cooler, and so that you wake up and there's dew on the grass. What do you have to do if you want to cut your grass? You wait. How long do you have to wait? Till it, it dries. How long does it take to dry? Half a day sometimes. Sometimes half a day. Okay, so we'll go, we'll go with the, the long version is half a day. And he's saying, your love is like the morning cloud, the dew on the grass. It's there for the morning for a little bit, and then it's gone. Half a day. Probably less. And he's saying, that's what, that's what your goodness, that's what your love is like, Israel. And doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Doesn't it seem so, for us, that sometimes we're able to actually like love God? Like, like we see what he's done for us and we have this passion for him. But then so soon after that, it's gone, right? It's like dew. It's just, it was there, right? But where did it go? I mean, you don't, you don't really see it gone, but it's just gone, and so he's saying that that's exactly what we're, what we're like. There's a song, He Will Hold Me Fast. And the one line that always gets me is, For my love is often cold. Why does our love turn cold? Right? There's nothing about God that has changed. There's nothing about our position in Christ that has changed. But it is so true that our love is often cold. Um, the hymn, Come Thou Found. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God, of, God I love. And, and that's the story of our lives. And so he's looking at Israel saying, how is it possible that you just, you love me so little, that your love is there and then it's gone? So what did they love instead? And I think this might be one of the keys to why their love was always gone in the morning. They loved many other things. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Their drink is sour, they have committed whoredom continually, her rulers with shame do love. In Chapter 8, verse 9, it says, They have gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim has hired lovers. In chapter 9, verse 1, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people, for thou hast gone whoring from thy God, and, and thou hast loved a reward upon the corn floor. In verse 10 of chapter 9, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree and at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor, and they separated themselves unto shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. Chapter 12, verse 7. He is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. They loved a lot of things, just not God. They loved the shame of their idolatry. They loved the sin that went along with it. They loved the surrounding nations. They loved the reward of their dealings. They loved their abominations. They loved to oppress or deceive for the purpose of financial gain. These are all the things that it said that they love. Right? And all of those things, I feel like they're really relevant, aren't they? Like, they love the world around them. They love idols. They love work. They love sin. They love money. Sounds really familiar. That's exactly the things that they loved. And so because they loved all of these things first, and because we saw last week that they trusted in these things, they had no love for God. And so what is 
the proper response to God's love. Um, we know the verses in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. It just talks about the fact that we love him because he first loved us. He showed us his love. He manifested his love toward us by dying on the cross for us. And so we should love him because he loved us. Um, what is the right response to, to God's love? Hosea chapter 14. And this is uh, the prayer that God tells Israel to pray. Right? This is the prayer of repentance and I think mercy and love that they're told to pray. Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take you with words, and turn to the Lord, and say to him, Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asur shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods. For in thee the fatherless finds mercy. That's the prayer. Lord, we turn to you. Lord, save us. Forgive us our sin. Show us grace. We will put away the idols that we once trusted in. The governments and countries that we believed could save us. The strength that we thought we had. The false gods that we looked up to for wisdom and for truth. You are the God who makes orphans your adopted children. And so once again, show us your mercy. What an incredible prayer that is. It's a prayer of saying, God, I'm going to stop trusting in all of those things. I recognize how much I need you. And so I turn to you to trust in you and to love you. That's what, he, that's what, that's what this prayer is. And, and God's response to that prayer is in the very next verse. He says, and I will heal their backsliding. Right? And that's amazing, isn't it? That it's not even that God is, that we're saying like, God, I'm going to completely fix myself and I'm going to be perfect and then I'm going to turn to you. He says, turn to God, repent of your sin. And then he says, I will heal your backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. There's so much of God's anger towards sin we see in this book. And what it takes is for God's people to be humble and to repent and to trust in him, to love him. And so that's the call. Um, In the book of Hosea, the love of God is a vivid reality, not a barren abstraction. It's not just this thought. It's not just this idea. It's so clear in the book of Hosea what love looks like. And so God's love is something like, it's a love that we've never seen before. It's love we can't imagine. And it's amazing. And so in conclusion, I think what the book of Hosea teaches us is that we must know God. Right? You've got to know who he is. You know who he is from creation. You know who he is primarily from his word. You must trust God. When we know of who he is, we learn that he is a God that can be trusted. He's a God that never changes. He's a God that is sovereign, who holds everything in his hands. And he's a God who is good, who is gracious and merciful and kind and loving and compassionate, that he cares for his people, that he is a God that can be trusted. And so we must trust him. And finally, we must love him. The right response to God's love for us, right? His love always comes first. But the right response of God's love by God's people, is to love him back. Hosea, the name of Hosea, means salvation. And really, this is a book of salvation. 
It's a book to learn how we can be saved. And I think it's a book where we learn as God's people how we keep living like God's people. Okay? And so thank you for coming and thank you for being part of the class. And we're all done. Does anybody have any questions or thoughts? No, you can go. Unless you haven't. No. I have a question, Dan. Yeah. Isaiah 11. Um, the last couple of verses. Well, like, I had noticed that before we saw how I will not return. Um, they will not return to destroy you. Um, it says they shall walk after the Lord. So is he talking about like in future, like the Gentiles turning to Christ after reason? Or because we know that Israel didn't follow God. Right. So so Israel was sent around the world and married off and but we still see some incredible times where like Jesus goes to the woman of the well in Samaria. Okay. That Samaritan would have been from the lineage of these Israelites. And then it, one of the first, we call it revivals that happens, happens in the city of Samaria. And so there are many, so maybe part of it is that there will be a time when that real, like children of Israel, these children of Israel come to Christ. I, I think like in that, he can also be talking about all of Israel has this opportunity to return. It, it's good to remember though, that when he says this, it's not an unconditional promise to provide salvation to all these people, right? It's a, like, God's, God's mercy is amazing and it's incredible, but it's always conditional upon our repentance, right? And so, so that was required. And so there was, a, he gave them, even here, I think, an opportunity to repent. And I think that, like, being able to separate the, the state of the whole country of Israel and individual Israelites and their, their ability to still repent even in the middle of this judgment is helpful too. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Good day.